All right, guys, second week in a row, I've got a mother of seven coming in with strong opinions to share with you guys. This week, it's Stephanie Holden-Smith. Uh, she is the founder and president of Thatcher Coalition. And as I said, a mother of seven, she writes for 1819 News, and she's got tremendous experience in the inner workings of Alabama politics down in Montgomery. She's going to come on to talk about how worldview uh, affects these things and why politics should be local and not national. Uh, tune in. You don't want to miss out. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome everyone to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast. We've got a great <clears throat> episode for you guys today. If I can get the frog out of my throat. Okay, we're going now. Um, <clears throat> today we have, uh, for the, the, the second week in a row, we have a, a mother of seven coming in uh, who is full of fire and thunder. So this will be uh, two consecutive weeks of that. Really excited. Um, but a special guest who um, has I've become really good friends with over the course of the last year to 18 months or so, uh, Miss Stephanie Smith, who is the founder and <clears throat> El Presidente uh, of the Thatcher Coalition. Um, and she's going to talk a little bit about what that is and, and why she started it. But <clears throat> she has very unique experience um, in Montgomery, Alabama politics and, and specifically state level politics in Montgomery um, that make her an expert in the field. And so wanted to bring her on today and talk about all of the things because there's lots of things and we're going to try and talk about all of the things. Um, but she is indeed an expert and she is, if I have a question about anything that's going on in Montgomery, Stephanie is one of the first phone calls I make. And I know I'm not the only one that makes that phone call when they have questions. So <clears throat> Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, um, what we always do is we want to get to know our guests. Mm -hmm. So if you would be so kind as to share your story of how <clears throat> you went from, um, where you were born all the way to the prestigious position of opinion writer for 1819 news <laughs> uh, and also the, the founder of Thatcher coalition. Sure. Um, we actually, my, my family actually moved around a lot growing up. So it, when people ask me where I'm from, I say mm -hmm. Dothan, okay. Alabama. Um, but I, we lived in nine different States. Mm, and so, me. yeah. And so, um, we moved around a whole bunch, um, mainly because my dad was in construction. Okay. And so a lot of people will assume living in so many different places that my parents were military, but yeah. they weren't, um, they were in construction. And so, um, just me and my sister growing up and, um, always the new girl. And it was one of those things I never really enjoyed growing up being the new girl. Um, but it really is one of those God things that that's part of what prepared me for being able to do what I do now. And so, um, moved around a lot growing up, went to Auburn for undergrad, went to UAB for graduate school. I worked my way through graduate school at night um, while working for Regents Financial Corporation in their governmental affairs department. Um, I've always been in, interested in politics, always been a history buff, kind of a nerd as far as that goes, um, heavy reader. And so um, just always interested in that. But when I went to Auburn for undergrad, um, that was the 1994 midterms. And um, I was interested in politics, but not super interested, not not one of those um, that was like in Republican clubs or anything like that. Um, but that was during the the Newt 
1994 midterm election, and it was electric, um, the changes that were being made. And, um, and so that, that piqued my interest and, and I graduated in, in political science and history. And then, um, while I was working for regions, I talked my way into their governmental affairs department. I actually had worked my way through undergrad as a paralegal for a local law firm in, in Auburn and, um, basically just talked my way into running the governmental affairs program at regions, um, because the, the folks that they had running it. Um, we're doing a good job and lobbying in Montgomery well, but they had no grassroots program and they had no way to engage the average employee yeah. into the process. And I saw that as a deficit and no one else wanted to do it. So I did. Yeah. Um, and so I built their grassroots program from the ground up and, um, and had a really good experience doing that. I uh, went from there. I was the president of the Opelika Chamber of Commerce for a while, and then I was um, deputy finance director for the state of Alabama. And um, that was a trial by fire because that time period was when uh, Governor Riley was just coming in. That's I was in his administration, appointee in his administration. And that was during the Amendment, amendment 1 days. And so uh, we were in a position in the state where – we actually had to fly to New York to ask the rating agencies not to downgrade us. We had so little money in our coffers that we really were not even making ends meet. And so um, that was an interesting experience. Um, the downfall of Amendment One, um, the voters, you know, voting that down, and then and then the cuts that we that we made. Um, but it, it created a situation to where. Um, I was intimately involved with state government where there were zero dollars to be had, um, no fluff, no extras, no pork. And um, my job as deputy finance director was to navigate, to help the budgets uh, be formed um, and then navigate them through the legislative process. And so that was an interesting, it was an interesting um, vocation. You know, yeah. and, and I really enjoyed it. I joke um, <clears throat> that my experience is in hurting children and hurting politicians. Yes. It's accurate. Yes. Um, That's hurting, H E R D. Her, yes, not, not hur hurting. Not hurting. Hurting. <laughs> I was like, whoa. As, <laughs> 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 yes, not hurting. Let's be clear. Yes. No DHR calls, please. That's right. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and so um, that, that was an experience. And, and, as we had uh, more kids, I stayed home more. Yeah. I never really totally stepped out of politics um, in that I have always volunteered for different organizations, different campaigns, um, kept a lot of the connections that I had in Montgomery. Because for me, and I think this is accurate for a lot of people, whether or not they understand it or not, um, politics is relational. And so if you don't have relationships with people uh, ahead of time, it's very difficult to get them to do what you want them to do. Yeah. And so, um, when you're a lobbyist, when when you're, I was when I was a corporate lobbyist when I was with the um, with the state administration. What I realized quickly was, um, you know, you have to have those relationships to get the person to pick up the phone call, uh, and you also have to have those relationships for people to trust you. Yeah. And you have to stand by your word. And so, um, you know, I just kind of built a reputation for knowing what I was talking about, doing my homework mm -hmm. and knowing what I was talking about. And then also just being really honest and saying, you know, 
we're, we're just not going to go that direction instead of hedging or, or being dishonest or telling somebody one thing and then doing something else. Yeah. The other thing that I did for the Riley administration was uh, in economic development. I was kind of the point person uh, for all of the workforce and economic development decisions and dollars um, in the finance department. And that, that was also one of those <clears throat> situations to where that's, that's where a lot of the wiggle room is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that and um, transportation and so in ADECA now, but anyway, um, so where a lot of the wiggle room is and where their wiggle room is, that's where the power is. Yeah. And so <clears throat> we got to a situation to where we did have some funds um, because most of those funds, whether or not they're transportation or, or a lot of economic development funds, you know, filter down from the feds. Yeah. And so even though we had no money, they still had money that was yeah. trickling down. And so um, I, I made some good relationships in that way. But again, by being honest and saying, hey, we're going to do this in a fair way. We're not we're not going to play favorites. We're not yeah. going to, you know, keep a list, you know. Yeah. The famous whiteboard yeah. that's being kept now um, in the Siegelman years, that was not a whiteboard. I guess it was um, in the 90s, so maybe whiteboards weren't yeah, really you know, a thing. But, well, what Siegelman and, and his finance director would do is that they kept lists, yeah. like a favored, you know, a favored list, a, a, yeah. a not favored list, mm-hmm. and they kept it underneath the glass on, on their desks and, yeah. and their conference room. And if you were on this list, you got something specific. Yeah. If you're on this list, you got something else. If you're on this list over here, you didn't even get in the door. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's really not the way I think politics should work. Um, because I really actually believe in a representative democracy. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. crazy. And so, um, it's one of those things that, yeah, I, I really felt strongly about being honest and about doing things the fair, a fair and in a transparent way. So. Well, that sounds like you don't belong in Montgomery. So I left Montgomery. <laughs> that <laughs> brings that to note. me. That brings me to leaving Montgomery. No, I really actually never lived in Montgomery. I lived in Birmingham, and when I was with Regions, I lobbied in nine states and in D.C. But because at that time Regions was a state bank, mm-hmm. Alabama mattered most. So yeah. I spent most of my time in Montgomery, but um, lobbied in a, a bunch of different places, which gave me a, a different perspective on Alabama. Uh, both positive and negative, honestly. Um, yep. You know, we're known to be a super corrupt state. Um, Louisiana, pretty up there with us. Um, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're. Uh, we probably had more convictions, but I'm not sure that that's a that's a, a, a yeah total reflection on yeah. on the level of corruption. But anyway, um, so you mentioned we have seven children. Yes, we do. Our oldest is uh, 21. And my youngest is in first grade, which sounds like a big gap until you realize that there are a bunch of them in between. Yeah. So um, the last about 15 years, <clears throat> I've been volunteering for different organizations, but really predominantly staying home and raising my kids. Amen. Um, they're my first priority always. Um, and it's one of those things that I wouldn't trade that. I actually had uh, someone that I worked and, and with very closely um, in politics, I won't say who it was, but who looked at me when I left and said, you're ruining your life. And I said, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm embracing my life. Amen. And so that's when we had two kids. Yeah. And then we had five boys after that. Yeah. So embracing my life <laughs> yes. created a basketball team of Smiths. There you go. So. I love it. 
What uh, I'll ask you the same question I asked my previous guest. So, <clears throat> what what uh, what inspired you to, to to have so many children? You know, I um, growing up, maybe it was the moving around, maybe it was the the lack of mooring. Um, um, family has always been super important. We're very tight. My my immediate yeah. family is very tight. When we talk daily, um, maybe that was because we moved around so much. So it was mm-hmm. kind of us versus the world. But um, I've always been family first. Yeah. Um, I always said I wanted four. So that's big yeah. in the world standards. Yeah. You know, I've always wanted the big family thing. Yeah. I, I have one sister. Yeah. And so it's just the two of us. And um, I always said I wanted the big family. So we overshot by a few. By a few. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think my husband's name is Dalton. I, I mean, he would have, he would have had more. Yeah. Um, but after, after that last one, I, I was I was finally ready, but yeah. there was never a moment where it felt like a burden. Yeah. There was never a moment when I thought, "Why are we do why, why are we doing this? Why are we building this type of family?" Yeah. Um. And so, it to me, it just came very naturally that that this is what we're called to do. This is you know, as, as a as a mother, I'm I'm called to embrace life. Yeah. I'm I'm called to um you know bring more life into the world, and we've just always seen that as a gift. Yeah. I mean, there have been some interesting moments, I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> we could probably compare stories on yeah. that alone. But, you know, from people asking me if I was driving the daycare van through yeah. Krispy Kreme um, to some really negative stuff. I mean, people oh, yeah. will say really negative things uh, in front of your children, yeah. too. Um, but it's been one of those uh, a huge blessing. I mean, obviously, um, hard work. Yeah. I mean, it is. It is hard work. Um, there are always... Um, you know, especially with that age difference with having teenagers and then we, we literally had teenagers and then kids in diapers at, you yeah. know, at the same time. And so, which you understand, I'm there right, now. Uh, right. And so, um, so it, it's, it's taxing, but in a good way. And you, at the end of the day, when you're tired and, you know, kind of spent, you feel like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. When, um, it's interesting because it is, there's a lot of people that do kind of frown upon that lifestyle, which whatever. Um, but, uh, so much so that like, you know, when I was, would be stressed out and we were having a hard time, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody about it sure. because you're like, well, if you didn't have some kids, Absolutely. you know, and it's like, so you brought it upon yourself. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of my mentors I reached out to and, you know, and, and asked and told him, I said, man, I feel like there's no one I can talk to because and he has eight kids. Yeah. He says, why? Because people tell you to stop having so many kids. Right. <laughs> That's exactly why. Um, and then, you know, I was just kind of telling him about, you know, whatever sure. silly situation it was yeah. that had me stressed out and had, you know, my wife, to, you know, the end of the rope and we're tired and mm-hmm. exhausted and blah, blah, blah. And he just said, yeah, it's hard, but is there anything better you could be doing? Right. And that was it. And that's why it's good to have mentors in your life. Right. And that's so, right. Um, you know, we, we would not, I mean, there's nothing else we'd rather be doing and God just in, in his kindness and goodness kind of brought us to that vision of mm-hmm. big family and all those things and really getting my home in order. And, you know, that's a big, you know, crux of what we try to do on this podcast is encourage fathers to mm-hmm. take up that mantle, to be the chief disciple maker in their home, to, to, to love their wives and shepherd their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for about a period of about four years. And I really kind of equate it when it, when it talks about a pastor being called to the ministry that he needs to have his household in order. Uh, you know, and the Bible specifically says, you know, if they're going to be an elder, they're going to be a pastor. How, you know, how can they manage the household of God if they can't even manage their right. own household? But I also think it's um, the amount of time it takes to be in pastoral ministry 
if you jump into the pastoral ministry and your home isn't in order, it's not going to just get in order all of a sudden. Right. Right. And I've learned that now that I've started a business. If I tried to start this business four years ago, never would have worked. Right. right. We had to really order our, you know, order our home around the word of God and, you know, disciplined routine, you know, it's mm-hmm. almost like a military. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's a blast. And I mean, just the, the moments, you know, the stressful moments are like that. And then the moments of blessing are, you know, astronomically more. So. Right. You know, there's the, the old saying of uh, a mother is only as happy as her unhappiest child. Yeah. And so when, <clears throat> when you have a lot of them, yeah. there's almost always an unhappy child. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it does give you a different perspective on life. And I will say, as ours have gotten older, it's obviously gotten easier mm-hmm. as far as the physical work. Yeah. As you know, I mean, people will ask funny things like, yeah. how do you keep up with the laundry, you know, dishes, you know, I mean, just normal day-to-day things that are compounded by having so many people in your house. Yeah. And so, but it's one of those things, yeah, God gives you the grace that you need and gives you the ability to handle things that you know, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to handle if we had one or two children. Yeah. And um, my son, who is 16's friends, named me lovingly, of course, Sergeant Smith, <laughs> when they were in yes. about fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. Um, because one of the benefits of having a big family is kind of feeling like it's like intersectionality rules or something, kind of feeling like you understand kids. Yeah. Right. Because that's what you're doing in yeah. life. And so um, I will not hesitate to discipline other people's kids either, especially kids within our sphere of influence, within our community. And so I I don't hesitate to discipline other people's kids. (laughs) And I mean, again, not hurting. Yes, we're not hurting hurting children. Hurting. We're we're hurting. Right. Like a sheep, like a sheepdog. Think of sheepdog. So anyway, um, but, and so my nickname is Sergeant Smith. I fine. That yeah. that's, I, I didn't take that as an insult at all. I, I took that as I, they, when they come to our house, they know who's in charge. Yeah. And when they come to our house, they understand that they have a role to play and it's yeah. under the authority of the parents. That's right. And, and that's not a negative to me. Yeah. That's positive. And what I've noticed bigger families, and again, this isn't just our braggadocious talking about big families, but <laughs> we don't get to do it very often. So we're going to take the opportunity. Hey, we're to taking the hits. Right. We might as well right. take the glory. We're going to do it. So but in order to have that many kids in a household, there has to be order. Like, right. just, like it's literally required. And so you have order. And then, you know, you, you ultimately, you know, one of the things we strive for, Bible gives kids two commandments, says, you know, and the fifth commandment on your father and mother. And then Ephesians 6, 1, talking about the fifth commandment says, children, obey your parents and Lord for this is right. So children have two things they're supposed to do. They're supposed to honor and they're to obey. Right. If you can create a culture of honor and obedience in your home, Right. Then there's this peace and like kids will come into our house that maybe that's not the culture of their home or whatever, but they right. sense it and it's different. And so anyway, I could ramble on and on um, about that stuff, but it is interesting. And, <clears throat> you know, we know adversity <clears throat> is what ultimately brings about character. Mm-hmm. Right. And so people will meet my wife and they're just like, wow, she's amazing. You know, and, and again, she is absolutely amazing. Okay. And, you know, she is a godsend and 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 she's, you know, in, incredible. And if you know my story, it's even more incredible. <laughs> but it's like, well, she didn't just start that way, right? right? It took stepping up and doing the things that she she feels that God wants her to have this many children. And so mm-hmm. she obeyed and then, you know, left her career mm-hmm. and came home and, you know, is changing diapers and hurting children mm-hmm. and 
um, you know, spanking butts and, and homeschooling and all this other stuff. And that's what's developed her character into what it is. Right. Is because she was obedient. That brought adversity. But what's interesting is when you're, you know, not not to say if you don't have a big family, you're disobedient, but other areas where God does require obedience and then you can be obedient and there's going to be adversity mm-hmm. or you can be disobedient and you're going to have adversity. Absolutely. And I'd rather take the adversity that goes with the obedience than, than the adversity that comes with the disobedience. So Yeah, absolutely. And and the um, if if when my kids watch this, they will laugh. <laughs> and that I agree with you on the order. Yeah. And and sometimes I err too much on that side. Yeah. But I think it it's it's a defense mechanism. Yeah. It's it's like I know that if we don't maintain this semblance of order, um, that it'll just spin out of control. Yeah. But but God is a God of order. Amen. And so it, you know, it it's one of those things that again, back to the back to the biblical. Um, but you know, it, it's also one of those things that when you lay your head down at night, if you're a believer. Um, you know, you've done what you could and you've failed mm-hmm. because I fail every day. all the times. Yep. Um, <laughs> but you pray and you, you pray for God to make up for your failures and to make up for that in the eyes of your kids. Yep. And so, yeah, to me, it's, it's, it's a bit of a calling. Um, but for us, it was more just kind of what you said about Christina, which is, it's more of a methodical obedience. Yeah. And it like and you that. just kind of wake up and you're like, oh well, here we are. Yeah, you know, um, there today. wasn't like a day that Dalton and I sat yeah. down and and like made a life plan yeah. that included this. Yep. Um, but we've embraced it and we both love it and we've made it our our life's work. So yeah. good stuff. Well, we are going to change topics because I could probably fill up an hour <laughs> of just talking to you about this stuff. Um, but it turns out there's a bunch of problems in Alabama yes. and we're going to solve them all right here. This is my Dr. Phil impression today. We're going <laughs> to fix it today. Okay. Right now. Uh, I don't know that we'll be able to fix all of Montgomery's problems, but we're going to, we're going to offer some, some very strong suggestions. Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the, the reasons that we started in 1819 news, um, golly, the, the list is long, but I, one of the problems that really sticks out that I want to talk about is the national focus of politics. You know, um, everyone watches Fox News. I mean, you can literally drive down a dirt road and look into people's houses, you know, and you see Sean Hannity on their 52-inch right. flat screen every house you drive by. Um, and, 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 and if you're watching Fox News all day, every day, and that's your entertainment, you don't have a local focus on politics. Right. It, it, is, it is the soap opera that is national politics. And if you don't think that it's soap opera, and they're not working with the media to make it into a show that gets you lulled in and so that you feel like if you miss something, you're going to die, so you're mm-hmm. glued in so that you're watching their commercials mm-hmm. and buying it's Mike Lindell's pillows, um, <laughs> then, you know, <clears throat> then there you go. But um, And we love Mike Lindell. Don't get me wrong. Yes, but, of course. Yeah, so, um, but when when that is your focus on politics, it's very easy to be duped by the people who are supposed to be doing things for you in the state that they're actually closer to you that actually affect you more. Absolutely. And um, conversation I had with Matt Murphy before he left to Nashville, see if I can say this right. He says, it seems like the things that affect us most are the things that matter the least. Mm. You know, the things that touch us the most are the things that seem to matter the least when it comes to politics. And right. so- you know, um, what I have seen go on is, 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 you know, KIV knows that everyone's watching Fox news. These other people down there that, you know, they know that everyone's watching Fox news. And so when people take just a split second to leave Fox news, to look at Montgomery, everyone down there just has to be like, Joe Biden's an idiot. That's we right. hate Putin. We hate Justin Trudeau. 
Hey, Joe Biden, Joe Biden's we an hate idiot. everybody but us. Right. And then and and so you're like, oh, they hate Joe Biden. They must be like the good. Right. And then they're back to watching Fox News and they don't they don't see what's actually happening. So talk a little bit about the importance of politics being local. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's part of why I started Thatcher Coalition. Yeah. So, again, stay at home, work in politics, stay at home mom for years. And then why jump back in yeah. now? Um, and that's a lot of the reason why. Um, because, and, and it's irritating to me when I feel myself getting caught up into those movements, into those tail wagging the dog nonsense moments. Um, I get really irritated with myself when I allow myself to do that. I felt like that about the midterms. We can circle back around to that if you want, but I I forgot there even happened. (laughs) You were busy. (laughs) Um, but it's one of those, uh, I started Thatcher coalition because the groups that I, um, have been volunteering with for years, um, and the candidates, frankly, that I've been volunteering with for years, uh, seem to have the wrong focus a lot. Lots of good people wanting to be involved, but easily distracted by the tales of woe from D.C., and easily distracted by what was happening nationally and and even internationally, right? I mean, so just to use the Ukraine situation um, as, as an example um, there were literally people, you know, virtue signaling on social media with Ukraine flags who could not find Ukraine yeah. on a map. So why do we care? I mean, of course we care about people, but why do we care so much about specifically that situation versus what's happening in our neighborhoods, what's yeah. happening, you know, in our own state? And, and the reason is that we're listening to corporate media. Yep. We're listening to what they're telling us is important instead of stopping and thinking, okay, what is important to my family? And then working out from there. Yep. And so uh, one of the reasons that I started Thatcher Coalition is because I saw that a lot of the groups that were trying to do good in the state had one major missing component that I understood well from working in corporate politics, which is money. Yeah, And so there were a lot of volunteer groups doing a lot of legwork, a lot of grassroots work that then would get down to Montgomery with all of their ducks in a row and then just get obliterated in a committee hearing or obliterated on the floor because the powers that be all have cash. They all have PAC money. They all have paid for access, which is not necessarily a negative yeah. Um, it's just the game that's being played. Yeah. And so when you have volunteer groups and nonprofits who are very well-meaning and even are right on a lot of issues that don't have the ability to pull those levers, they're always going to be on the lo- on the losing side. Now, yeah. that's not to say that every legislator is crooked. That's not to say that there aren't any statesmen in Montgomery. Do I wish there were more? Of course I do. Yeah. Um, but, but when you have all things equal, um, and there's not a clear right way, there's not a clear direction of this is the right thing and this is the wrong thing, which is the vast majority of the things that they vote on are, are not these clear, you know, huge issues that, you know, this is clearly the right way to go. And this is, you know, the wrong way to go on most votes that they take, it could kind of go either way. Yeah. And so if it could kind of go either way, they're going to go with the person who's going to help them get reelected. Yeah. And that's just human nature. And to deny that human nature just doesn't work. Yeah. 
And so that's part of why I started Thatcher Coalition because it, it's a little it's a little unicornish in that it's a, a grassroots group of like minded people um, who are conservatives and conservatives because of their worldview, mm-hmm. um, and then trying to push out information to them about what's actually happening behind the scenes in Montgomery, and then equipping them with that information for action items. And then also on the other side of the equation, um, we have a political action committee that puts those actions into, into action, you know, into those words into action. So that's why I started it. Um, very much, you know, a, a similar vein into how, how and why you started 1819, which was yep. you took your experience yep. nationally and brought it home. Yeah. And I'm taking my experience from Montgomery yeah. and trying to spread it across the state. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one of those things, even, even in, in most media situations, even in the state of Alabama, when I worked in the governor's office, we looked at clips and I'm old enough to where the clips were like physical clips. Yeah. <laughs> they were pieces of paper that were brought and put mm-hmm. on my desk every morning. Yeah. We looked at the clips, but the clips were about three or four days old yeah. at, at the best. And, and, we because we were there, we were on the ground. We knew what was happening before it was reported on, right? And so, when you're working day to day in politics, if you're not looking at the undercurrent, you're looking at the wrong thing. Yeah. If you're not trying to figure out why somebody voted a certain way, you're missing the point. Yeah. And so, a lot of people don't make those connections, and they just kind of take whatever they see as or whatever is said as value. And that's not normally the case. But again, that's not to say that people are, you know, sitting around maniacally trying to figure out how to lie to the people. It's just, there's an undercurrent that is there and accurate. And then what is said is sometimes a reflection of that, but most times not. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to do is is rally the believers yeah. rally those who um, have the same worldview I have, have the same understanding of what the problems are, and, and then try to seek solutions by influencing state politics and more on issues than on specific candidates. Because yeah. to me, and maybe it's because of my worldview, when we place uh, self, you know, when we place savior status even a little bit on any man or woman, they're going to fail us, yeah. right? And so what I like to focus on is speaking truth, regardless of the consequences, and focusing on issues and doing the right thing on issues, and then also influencing legislators and state officials to come alongside us on doing the right thing, but not putting all of our eggs in one person's basket, no yeah. matter who it is, yeah. because— you know, because again, you know, I, and I feel like this with the, not to go national, but I feel like this with the Trump DeSantis yeah. push, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And, and that's to say, I like Trump just fine. I like DeSantis just fine. You know what I care about? Who's going to do what on what issue? Yeah. Because ne- neither one of them, I'm, I'm not going to agree with either one of them on everything. Yeah. So on the issues that are my top five issues or my top 10 issues, how do they fall on those issues? And then I'm going to make my decision about who I'm going to support. 
um, not on personality, yeah. not on sound bites, because for the most part, those are false. Yeah. Yeah. It is still frustrating though. Like <laughs> it is, what are you doing Trump? So, well, and it is one of those things like you mentioned, which is, you know, in the state of Alabama, the, the marketing folks and the political folks have figured out what works Yeah, and what works is second amendment issues being against abortion being against Biden or whoever the Democrat du jour is. Yeah. And it's infuriating to see the ads, to see the you know, mailers and things. And, and what you want to shout or what I want to shout is, okay, that has nothing to do with being governor. Yeah. That has nothing to do with being lieutenant governor. That has nothing yeah. to do with, with being secretary of state or PSC president. Yeah. You're not fighting the man in D.C., when it's your job to run the state Senate. So you're saying always toting Jeremy Oden, that, that him toting a gun has nothing to do with his performance as a PSC person. We hope not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, oh, but I mean, gosh. there are, there are too many examples to, to mention, but it, it was frustrating. I feel like a lot of people were frustrated this past week with the midterms. And that's exactly how I felt right after the primaries. Yeah. Because I'm more Alabama focused. And that is <clears throat> that people were misled. Um, and then, and, and that, and that the misleading is kind of, an, it, it's intentional. Yeah. It, it can't be unintentional Absolutely. at this point. And, and, you know, something that people, I push back on this with everything in me because I believe it very strongly. People tell me all the time, well, maybe Alabama isn't as conservative as you think it is. I hear that all the time. And I'm like, yeah. well, wait a second why are the commercials so conservative then mm -hmm. if the people weren't concert as conservative as I think they are, right. why are, why aren't the commercials like maybe we should increase taxes and mm -hmm. you know, abortion's not that big a deal and right. you know, guns, are they really necessary? That's not the commercials, right? The commercials is the biggest gun, the biggest mm -hmm. Bible, the mm -hmm. biggest cross, you know, our 400 year old governor is sitting there shoot at a shooting range. Right. Right. You know, talking about high step. And so, <laughs> If 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 the people weren't conservative, that wouldn't be the the, the lure that's on the the hook, right? That wouldn't be the messaging. So the people are that conservative. What 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 we're hoping to show is that the the commercials are conservative, but the but the candidates need to line up with what they say they're going to do. Yeah, it's one of those. If the candidates, if our elected officials actually did what they say in their commercials or in their mailers, yeah, we would have very few. I would have very few complaints. Yeah. But that's not what's happening. Ever. What's happening is that Republican candidates are saying what they think we want to hear. Yeah. And then they're banking on no one paying attention to what they're actually doing. And then when you do pay attention, they say, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. That's right. right. And they will do what they want to do. Uh, the gas tax is a good example, right? So no one, zero people, zero candidates campaigned on the gas tax, but every single candidate was vetted by the powers that be on their vote on the gas tax. Yeah. And then the very first vote was the gas tax. And so if that doesn't show you, that's just an example. It's a bad one uh, or a good one, but it, it, that's just an example of the way Montgomery actually works versus what is talked about on a daily basis yeah. about how Montgomery works. And they're banking on the fact that most people have lives to live. They're banking on the fact that most people are trying to put food on their table, 
keep their kids in line, you know, watch football on Saturday, enjoy them, enjoy their life. And the truth is that politics shouldn't matter as much as they do. If we had a truly limited government, they wouldn't, but they do. And, um, you know, politics shouldn't enter into every, I mean, it's my thing. Yeah. It's not everybody's thing. It yeah. shouldn't enter into everyone's mind on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, but it, it does influence everybody's daily life. I think Steve Dace put it in a really interesting way. Um, he's one of my favorite um, national political pundits. <clears throat> he has a, a book called Rules for Patriots. That's mm-hmm. obviously a playoff Rules for Radicals mm-hmm. by Saul Alinsky. Very, very well-written book. Really, really good book. Um and he says that politics is civil war without the guns. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to some degree, you know, we do need to be involved in politics. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't obsess over it, maybe the way that you do or that I do. I agree. But <clears throat> I think one of the problems is that people have stopped paying attention. And that's why we're here. Right. And the people in Montgomery are banking on the fact that people have stopped paying attention. And the only thing that they do pay attention into is Washington, D.C. And what they're actually paying attention to in D.C. is not actually what's happening in D.C. It's what Fox News is telling them. Right. So it's this whole thing. And so, you know, um, and and I am a big proponent of we're not going to vote our way out of this. Mm -hmm. And so that's not me telling you not to vote. Right. Voting is a piece of what needs to be done. It's just not the only thing. But but voting has almost come into like almost a form of idolatry in politics where it's like, well, in two more years, we'll really stick it to them. <laughs> it's like, no, but we still have two years of stuff that needs right. to be done. Right. <clears throat> Whether it's grassroots movements, building businesses, getting married, having babies, like mm-hmm. educating your children. Like there's all this stuff that needs to be done that has nothing to do with the ballot box whatsoever. Right. Um, you know, and, and who, who even knows what's going on at the ballot box these days, right? That's a whole nother topic. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I always tell people, you know, well, we've, we've, and, 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 and maybe this is just me being, um, oh, what's the word it's critical, but there's another cynical. That's the word. Um, everyone's like, man, if we get the house and the Senate back, I'm like, they're not going to do anything. Right. <laughs> like, right. man, if we can just get the House and the Senate back, it's going to be exactly the same because the Republicans are no better than the Democrats. Well, and we're in a we're in this strange, you know, eye for an eye desirous yeah. situation, which is and, and that's what I hear when people say things like, oh, we can get the House and the Senate back. We can we can impeach Biden. Uh, OK, yeah. like what good does that do? That's just yeah. that's just a payback. Yeah. What you're wanting is a payback. Yeah. And that's for me, that's a sign that we're putting too much emphasis on the people. Yeah. We're putting too much emphasis on the personalities yeah. and not enough emphasis on the issues and the things that matter, the kitchen table issues that yeah. that should have mattered um to people in the in the in the voting booth, but obviously didn't matter enough. And there's also this polarization, you yeah. know, and and I'm I'm susceptible to that as well. Um, what I try to train myself to do is that when I don't understand where in the world somebody is coming from, I try to hit the pause button because there are usually two things at place there, at play there. One is an internal thing for me that I'm being prideful yeah. and thinking I know and I, and I got this. You yeah. know, I understand this. And then the other thing is is a worldview question. Yeah. Um, we are at a, we're in a situation societally that is different than we ever have been. And that's not, it's not even political. 
in my opinion, in my estimation. It is, it's a spiritual question. Mm-hmm. And most Americans say, or, you know, if they're polled, are, they respond that they're Christians. But I would argue that what they're really saying is they believe in God. Yeah. They believe in a, a higher power. But I think that a lot of Americans are basically deists yeah. in that they believe in a higher power, but they don't look to that higher power as an authority in their daily lives. Yeah. And they're not ordering their lives in that manner, nor do they expect anybody else to. Yeah. It's an extreme moral relativism. It's the you do you. It's yeah. the your when, truth nonsense. Yeah. And then when someone does obey this person that they call Lord, they're radical. Yes. Right. So if someone does begin to order their life off the word of God mm-hmm. and are a little bit uncompromising in their pursuit of that, which right. I encourage, um, <laughs> you know, that that person's a psychopath. Right. right? No, they're far right. Right. Um, but it's like, well, I mean, either you believe it or you don't. And, and it's the whole, you know, I think the casting crowns guy, you say what you think, you live what you believe. Mm-hmm. And if you really believe, right, and had Dr. Del Tackett on, you really believe what you believe is really real, you could change the world. Right. Do we really believe this? And the answer for most people is probably no. Right. And that, that's one of those things that we talk about a lot in our house, which is if we truly believe what we say we believe, how how would you answer that question? Yeah. How, how, would, you, how would you respond to that situation? Yeah. And it's the same thing in your household as it is in society, which is most people are not responding to situations as though they're is objective truth. Yeah. Most people are not responding to their things that they encounter in their daily lives as there is something that is true, there is something that is false, and when I see something that is false, I'm it's my duty to call it out. Yeah. And that is actually what is loving. Yeah. Not being silent, not capitulating, not joining in. Yeah. Um, what's actually loving is speaking up for the truth. Man. And it's one of those things that we're, we've set up and ordered our society as a collective <clears throat> that those things aren't rewarded. Yeah. And like you pointed out, a lot of times there's, there's finger pointing involved yeah. when people actually do do that. You're a fundamentalist. You're a yeah. zealot. Um, you need to tone it down. You need, you're, you're a Christian nationalist. Yeah. That's, the, that's the newest I like this whole insult. owning the Christian nationalist thing. I don't know if you've seen this. I have seen people it. People have just started owning it, and they're like, okay, I guess I'm a Christian nationalist then. Right. Yeah. And what I, what I find interesting there is it's a, it's an interesting strategy. The the unfortunate side of it is that there are people who look at Christian nationalism as a form of like a like white nationalism, but with religion. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what I think is interesting is if you see most of the Christian nationalists and you hear that their message and what they're actually saying is it's like, <clears throat> you know, a nation is going to base its laws off of a worldview. Right. That's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a governing worldview. It mm-hmm. can't just be willy-nilly. It can't be whimsical and capricious setting up of laws and using human reason and all these other things. Right. There's got to be an objective standard somewhere. Mm-hmm. And our nation was founded on um, English common law, um, William Blackstone. Mm-hmm. English common law and William Blackstone is based off Israel's civil code. Right. You go to the two major confessions in the historic church. You have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you have the 1689 London Baptist Confession, or the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Oh, it's a mouthful. <laughs> but those two confessions, and they both go back to the general equity found in Israel's civil code. <clears throat> that is where we figure out what laws are good for a society and what laws are bad. Now, the general equity means that we're, you know, it's not going to be written in our case law that if an ox gets out of its pen and gores a pregnant woman, you owe him like, you know, seven shillings or whatever they had back then, right? But it's the general equity that you're responsible for your animals, right? right. 
it's the general equity. You're, you're, you're responsible for the safety of your guests in your home mm-hmm. because they used to, you know, the, one of the best examples is that there was, they said that you had to have a parapet around the top of your house mm-hmm. because in Israel, everyone was on the top of their house when they had people over cause it was hot. Right. And so they would go to the top of the house Well, if people fell off the house. Yeah. What it's, it's saying is you're responsible mm-hmm. for the safety of your guest. And mm-hmm. so we, we take that wisdom that God gives us in Israel civil code and we apply that to our laws. And so when we had a nation whose laws reflected and had a, the Bible and had a biblical standard, a biblical basis, we flourished mm-hmm. like no other nation has ever flourished before. Mm-hmm. God was the God of this nation. The Bible says, <clears throat> blessed is the, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And, and, and it was just, it was unquestioned. And the beauty of it is, is in this quote unquote Christian nationalist state, which would have been America for 150 years, um, you know, you can be a Muslim, you can be a something else and be here. And we're not, we're not saying that you need to go to church. We're not saying that right. you need to offer. We're, incense. Not, we're, not, we're not saying you need mm-hmm. to, you know, take communion or get baptized. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is that these are what the laws are. Right. So like, you can't kill people here. You can't rape people. You can't throw gay people off buildings. Right. Right. So, and, and, you know, and so that's actually a whole lot better than it is in some of these other places. Right. Sure. And so we're not saying that someone has to be a Christian, but we are going to say that the laws of this land are going to reflect what the Bible has to say. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's my whole spiel on that piece. And so, you know, when people say that, you know, that's radical or that's crazy, and it's like, okay, well, what's the alternative? Yeah. What we have is the alternative. And what, what the alternative is, is that secular humanism and moral relativism, which you pointed out in your opinion piece, these are religions. Absolutely. And <clears throat> they are religions and those gods have laws and they have sacraments, abortion, mm-hmm. um, all, gay rights and all these other things. And they have church discipline. Just cross them and watch what happens, right. right? And so, you know, one of one of these gods is going to be the god of your nation, mm-hmm. and I choose the god of the Bible to be the god of the nation, right? And you know, I guess that means I'm a Christian nationalist, so <laughs> whatever. Well, and to your point, you know that they have church discipline because the the church is government is is the is church, church and society is is their church and so cancel culture is basically their church discipline that's exactly what it right? is right and so it's it's not even that that you personally can have an opinion you're actually not even allowed to have that opinion right yeah. it's not even that you you know have a, an opinion that is that is they disagree with it's that you're not allowed to say that opinion out loud because it's harmful and words can be violent. Right. Um, but you're just cast out. You're cast out from society for thinking differently than their religion. Yeah. So it is truly more fundamentalist than way more any religion that I've ever been associated with for sure. The other thing on the Christian nationalism piece to me is that we have this entire segment of, um, churches that have capitulated and bowed a knee to government authority. Yeah. And that was more clear than ever. It it wasn't created by COVID, but it became very clear during COVID that there were there are a lot of churches that were not really looking to God's word. Yeah. as their authority, but they were looking toward government to tell them when they were allowed to look to yeah. God's word for an authority. And um, that became very clear very quickly to a lot of people. Yeah. What I <clears throat> what I found interesting, I, again, in your opinion piece that you guys need to check out on 1819news.com, um, 
<clears throat> what was the title of it? Worldview. Well, it was Worldview what? Matters Worldview. mattered in in the midterms. Okay. And so you go on to talk about Romans 13. And again, we're talking about big families in the Bible and, you know, we're going to turn a bunch of people off, but whatever, it's my <laughs> podcast. Um, Romans 13, right? And so, you know, everyone just reads it and they look at it and they don't look at the context of what right. was happening in Romans and what was Paul doing? Who was Paul? Right. Well, <clears throat> you know, people use the words of a person who was killed for disobeying the government. Yes. And then they use his words that he wrote in Romans 13 and, 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 I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but to me, it's like, Hey, in a perfect scenario, not in a perfect scenario, but in a, in a, in, in an ideal situation and scenario, you have uh, a ruler mm-hmm. who is under the Lordship of King Jesus, or is at least behaving in a way where they reward good behavior and punish bad. Right. right? And that's kind of the biblical standard of what is government there to do. It's there to reward good behavior and punish bad, mm-hmm. right? Punish the evildoer with the power of the sword. That's why it exists. And if you have a government that's doing that, right, and it goes on in the fruits of the spirit, or love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against these things there is no law. Mm-hmm. Well, there is in, a, in an upside-down society, which is kind of where we find ourselves. Right. And so what Paul is saying is like, you know, God has instituted these authority figures for your good. Well, when they're, when they're acting the exact opposite and they're punishing good behavior and rewarding bad, right. things are upside down. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the whole Protestant Christian resistance theory that began the English Civil War, mm-hmm. that was part of no, the Reformation, the English Civil War, and then the founding of our nation was all based off Protestant Christian resistance theory. Right. The whole thing. And like that is what is in our DNA. It's in our bones as Americans mm-hmm. is when the state starts to do stuff that it's not supposed to do, we say, no. right, the state's not bigger than the church. The church isn't bigger than the state. The two along with the family are all horizontal, you know, if on a thing and Christ is above all three of them. Right. right? And so anyway, I'll keep rambling. Well, and it's interesting because when you, when you were speaking about that in the piece, I, I kind of sarcastically point out that nobody really talks about where he was and, and why he was there. They just want to point out the fact that we need to submit to authority, to governmental authority. But to me, the, the more compelling thing about his words are that are a couple of things. One is that he used his citizenship, right? Yeah. He used his citizenship for the benefit of other believers. And we need to do that as well. Yeah. And the other thing is that, um, you know, when you, when you have the argument of give Caesar what Caesar's yeah. right, keep in mind that Caesar was God. Not literally, but yeah. he declared himself God. Yeah, and so that was when 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 they said give Caesar what it was Caesar. That was an insult. Yeah, that was not what we think of it now as okay. Well, you have to you have to obey governmental authority because God says that uh, we should, and that we should give government what is government. That was an insult at the time because he believed he was divine. Yeah. And so when you're only giving Caesar what is his, you're saying that the rest of it belongs to someone else and the someone else is God. King Jesus. Yeah. Right. And so that's that's one of those things that has been skewed as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm not naive enough to think that that's an accident. Yeah. And one of the things that I found most interesting, again, John MacArthur is an absolute gift to the church. He's incredible. Love him to death. But, you know, for, for 50 years, he really preached Romans 13. It's yep. like, you got to do this. You got to do this. He yep. pushed back against the, you know, the American war for independence and, 
you know, yeah. kind of said that maybe that wasn't the best way George Washington could have went about it. And, you know, our founders could have went about it a little bit right. different. And then God and his providence brings, you know, Gavin Newsom up against John <laughs> MacArthur. Right. And John MacArthur's like, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I was wrong about that. I'm, I'm fixing to go toe to toe with the government now. Right. Shut your church down. Not going to do it. Right. Not going to be able to do it. <laughs> well, and, th- and that brings up a good question, which is where is everybody's line? Yeah. And not everybody has the same line you have. Not everybody yeah. has the same line I have. And, and that's, a, that's okay. Um, you know, but, but everybody has a line. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, for me, bringing it back to state politics, um, my line is when I'm being lied to. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't like being lied to. I don't like people misrepresenting their positions and then, uh, or telling people one thing and then doing something else. I don't, I don't like people signing their names on qualification papers at the Republican headquarters and then doing the exact opposite of what the Republican platform says that they are supposed to do. Because then at that point, they're not only lying to themselves, they're lying to everybody around them. And we're in a situation now in Alabama to where it's interesting because I talk to a lot of people and I know you do too, but I talk to a lot of people in politics or in, um, in, in different areas in different States. And when I complain, it's kind of like being the big family thing, yeah. right? When I complain or point out an issue that we're dealing with in Alabama, they're very dismissive yeah. in that they're like, I live in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Like you think you have problems. You yeah. live in Alabama. Um, and I would argue, and Pennsylvania really did have a tough midterm, but yeah. um, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not downplaying what they're dealing with, but what, but what I'm saying is it may be even worse in that, you can clearly identify the enemy um, if they make themselves known. Yeah. But here in Alabama, everybody has an R by their name. Yeah. Everybody's a good guy. So why aren't we passing good legislation? Why aren't we stopping bad legislation? Why aren't we actually, if we have a super majority, a super duper duper majority now, uh, 72% of Alabamians voted straight ticket. They believe in the Republican platform. The question is, why are the Republican officials that were elected under that platform not fulfilling the platform? Yeah. If we have all those numbers, there is zero reason why the entire platform wouldn't be the agenda yeah. for both the House and Senate caucuses. There's no reason why the Republican platform wouldn't be the agenda for the Republican governor and lieutenant governor. Yeah. If that's what they sign their name as believing, then that's what they should do. Yeah. And if they're not, they're lying. Yeah. And that's where we are. Oof. Yeah. It's um, it's an interesting thing, and I and I and I really think you know, and I always break it down. We have the most conservative people in the country in Alabama, and our and our and our legislature just doesn't reflect the people. And if all we could do if if that that's like the one thing, if we could get a legislature, governor, you know, whatever, those people that make those decisions that are running our government, if they would reflect the values of the people rather than scoff at them and belittle them and call them far right, you know, whatever. Because mm-hmm. um, that's really how a lot of these people feel. Not all of them, but a lot of the legislatures, they, they think that the people of Alabama are stupid and crazy and they're just a bunch of rednecks. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have to go pander to those people in order to get elected so that they can get in and do what they want to do. Um, right. And I, and I would add, I would add two other segments to that, which is, um, the, the bureaucracy in Mm -hmm. Montgomery is very powerful. 
the um, public sector unions are astronomically powerful yeah. for a red state. And then I would also add a third component, um, which is just systemically, we have a very small staff, uh, small legislative staff, pretty small um, gubernatorial staff in comparison to other states. And that lends itself to special interests actually running our state. Yeah. So the associations mm. and the paid lobbyists, corporate and contract alike, are who write the bills. Yeah. They write the bills, or their attorneys do, or you know whoever. They write the bills that benefit them, and then they hand that legislation to the legislators who have no staff or very little staff. And they share staff, basically. Um, and then and then those are also the same people that are handing them pack checks. Yeah. So they're handing them a check, and then they're also handing them the piece of legislation already written how they want it to be wrong? written. And so we're in a situation to where, um, you know, that that's who really runs the state. Yeah. And that's why it doesn't make sense. That's why it doesn't make sense when you look at um, – the legislation that's being passed. When you even when you look at the at the party at the um, conservative uh, or the Republican caucus platforms or their press releases, they actually put out press releases that they were very excited to pass the largest state budgets for the fourth year in the row in a row. And this is the Republican caucus. Yeah. And it's one of those things like, you know, I'll date myself, but it's one of those you know like this does not compute, yeah. right? And so um, you have to ask why. Yeah. And then when you back up and start figuring out who's actually in charge, yeah. uh, the political consultants that are in charge, the the lobbyists that are in charge, the associations that are in charge, um, of which I I used to be on that team, right? Yeah. I used to be in that club. And so I get how it works. Yeah. Um, but that that is really why it doesn't make sense. When you when you when you drive around and you talk to the salt of the earth people of the state of Alabama, um, who most have our worldview. Most are conservative. Most just really want to live their lives. They just really yeah. want to be left alone by government. Small tax, you know, small taxes, small government. Stay out of everybody's business, um, and and that's what they want. But what they're receiving is what the powers that be in Montgomery want, yeah. not what they want. Yeah. Well, um, it is depressing, and you think about you know some of those associations that. that the teachers union mm -hmm. specifically, sure. you know, lacing up the books is a, a way that I used to put it in a former life, but just putting tons of money into Republican coffers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm just like waiting for Planned Parenthood to start to be conservative. We're the new conservative Planned Parenthood. That's right. You know, we're not like that old, you know, liberal <laughs> Planned Parenthood. We love Jesus Planned Parenthood. We're right. super, we're, <clears throat> we're right Ronald Reagan, this Planned Parenthood. And then, you know, the legislature should be like, as long as it checks cash, that sounds good to me. Right. Well, and with with public sector unions specifically, um, AEA is like the shining star nationally yeah. of, of, pub, of public sector unions. Um, because, I mean, Paul Hubbard was a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. Uh, and you didn't grow up, <clears throat> you didn't grow up in Alabama, but we moved to Alabama when I was in middle school. And I remember the first time I heard about spring break. Spring break wasn't called spring break. Do you know what it was called? AEA. The entire state of Alabama, and everybody that grew up here is now laughing and because they know I'm right. Um, 
we called spring break AEA. Like we would literally be sitting in sixth grade math class and I would look at my, you know, my friend next door to me and be like, Hey, where are you going for AEA? We called spring break AEA. That's that, that, yeah, that is how much uh, marketing AEA and how much influence AEA has had over the state. What do you, and again, we'll end on this, but what are they doing now? What do you see them doing now to basically, we, we've obviously exposed and talked about ad nauseum the fact that they used to be a, a radical left organization, probably still a radical left organization, but you know they, they, they embraced the radical left organization part of it. It was ran under Paul Hubbard and Joe Reed, and you know they ran the state. The whole stories about Paul Hubbard being up in the balcony, giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down on mm-hmm. legislation, even to you know what color the carpet should be, and right. you know paying the parking lot to huge bills and everything else. He he would give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Ran the state, <clears throat> then you know I believe it was Governor Riley uh, got it switched to where they were no longer pulling money out of people's paychecks, but you actually had to voluntarily send money. Uh, to to the association, um, and that took them down. They kind of, you know, turned into what appeared to be nothing. Mm-hmm. And just like anything else that you cut down in Alabama, you know, you just look up a couple of days later and it's growing like a, a vine on something else. Mm-hmm. They've now seemed to have, have gotten into the Republican Party. They figured out the trick that all these Democrats that are running our Republican Party right now right. figured out is, oh, all you have to do is say you're a Republican and you'll get elected. You right. can even you know, uh, be the speaker of the house. Hey, you know, why not? And so, um, anyway, um, so they're doing that. They're moving to, to brand themselves as, is not the old AEA. What else do you see them doing? Well, I mean, I think they just see the writing on the wall as far as the, the shift to, you know, a a predominantly Republican state. I don't think that they've changed anything at all. They're still affiliated with the NEA, which is one of the most leftist organizations that exists. I mean, I I put them up there right next to Planned Parenthood. And so um, they're they're an affiliate of one of the most leftist organizations in the nation. Um, The influence of the Democrat Party and the influence of Joe Reid, and obviously Paul Hubbard, who has passed, um, has waned. But they functioned as an arm of the Democrat Party when it benefited them. Yeah. Now they're trying to function as an arm of the Republican Party. Yeah. And that's that's what or, that's what good organizations do, yeah. right? They adapt. So they're trying to adapt. The problem is again back to the being dishonest. They're still an affiliate of the most of one of the most leftist organizations in the nation. So when we hear nonsense like oh, well, um, the reason I take AEA money is because most of the teachers in my district are Republicans. The question, the next question, right? What, what's the next question? The next question is, oh, really? Do they also believe A, B, C, and D that the NEA believes? Do they believe you know, in gender equity? Do they believe in critical race theory? Do they believe, you know, and, and give them the list of all the things that the NEA is actively advocating for, and therefore the AEA is actively advocating for yeah. because a portion of their dues goes directly to the NEA to fuel all of this leftist nonsense. And they used to have, there was a slogan that was on their website, on the AA's website recently, and I think, I don't know if it was from us pointing it out. You may have pointed it out in one of your articles, I think, actually. I think you did. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember what it said, but it was it was just awful. Like, it was like, in these, and in, in they're doing the whole Republican thing, mm-hmm. and there was some saying on their website. I wish I could remember what it was, but anyway, it's atrocious. It's not there anymore. Right. Um, but I want to look something up that I, I saw that, um, 
Well, the NEA just tweeted. That's what I'm pulling yesterday up yesterday right or the day before. Edu- yeah. So NEA educators love their students and know better than anyone what they need to learn and to thrive. Educators love their students and know better than anyone. Anyone, including the parents. Parents, and that—that's the problem. That's—that is the. You can't summarize it any more than that. Is that they think they know better and. And one of the challenges that I think we run into, you you definitely see it in Alabama because we have a lot of poverty and um, things in the state. So what happens is they will look at a, a terrible situation. They'll go to a failing school where um, <clears throat> in a poverty stricken neighborhood where there's not a lot of parenting going on. Sure. And they look at that and and then the state, you know, reacts. Well, we have to save these kids. Right. That the, the, we know what's best for them, their parents don't. And what they do is they take this little twenty percent of the population or ten percent of the population, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. that is not being good parents, that are not raising their children and right. not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. And then they make all parents that, mm-hmm. right? And then <clears throat> how they're able to do that, especially in the NEA level and the radical left side of it, is they look at parents like me and you, mm-hmm. and they want to teach your kids about Jesus. Yeah. <sighs> They're going to ruin those kids. We got to get our hands on them. Right. And like, that's how they think. The earlier, the better. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. Get them, get them young. And that, that, I mean, that is their philosophy. So. Which brings it back to, you know, our newly re our newly reelected governor said that <clears throat> education is going to be her priority for the next four years. And when she was asked what that meant, she said, it's going to be transformational and that, her goal is to make education in Alabama from birth to workforce. So cradle to grave, basically. So we have we have a Republican governor spouting leftist talking points, which is that children are really property of the state. From cradle to grave. From cradle to grave. And that is going to be the educational priority. Gosh, I didn't think she could say anything worse than when we asked her what her worst her regret was over the legislative right. session. She was like, I just wish we'd have got to gambling bill through. I know it. I <laughs> and know then it. she comes in with this. Yeah. So, so but, but, but again, comes right back to worldview, which is, I believe, you believe, um, that children are a gift from God to a family. Yeah. Not a not not just a, some sort of metaphysical accident yeah. that then society and the government takes on. Yeah. And so it's a worldview question and it comes back to who is in charge? Who is in charge of children? Yeah. And it's a biblical admonition from the Lord to educate and raise your children yeah. yourself. And so of course there are there are circumstances where that's not possible. And in those circumstances, that's where churches, I would I was argue, just about to say, like, would, you've got would three step options. in. <laughs> churches, churches second, states third. Well, family, <clears throat> then first. church, yeah. Then, then if there's none of that, then a, I would say nonprofit. Yeah. You know, but I guess that's usually churches church. as well. Um, but you know, and then the state. State yeah. is last on on the list for me, yeah. but it's first on the list for them. Yeah. And so again, that's that's back to that worldview question, um, which we sh- and the and the t- discussion that we shouldn't be having in the state of Alabama. We shouldn't be having that discussion in the state of Alabama. We should have elected officials that understand the worldview of who they represent yep. and seek to represent us instead of seeking to represent the special interests, which include AEA. And and we we've, we've got to stop, but. 
it just makes me think the way that they try and push gambling through <clears throat> by attaching it to the lottery and then spend hundreds of millions of dollars on commercials talking about how good the lottery is and how, you know, Tina in Tennessee went to college with the lottery money and all that stuff. And we see how that works. Now that <clears throat> I see that the goal is going to be, you know, um, lifelong government funded childcare, mm-hmm. that they're going to start pushing that. And they, and these mothers that are not church that don't know Christ and they're, they're don't know their role. And even maybe they're not even Christians, but <clears throat> whatever, um, that, that don't understand that it is their responsibility and their calling to raise their children. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> raising children is tough. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And so then all of a sudden you have the benevolent government coming out and like, we'll take care of that baby for you. Right. It's not going to cost you anything. Mm-hmm. We'll get it. You don't worry. Right. And the moment that you hand it over, you know, you hand your child over, um, they're going to, they're going to begin, you know, catechizing and, and pumping into your children what they want and not what you want. Right. And, yeah. and teaching their religion. Yeah. Instead of the religion that you subscribe to. Yeah. And so for me, again, it all comes back to the spiritual. It all comes back to the worldview. Um, but as far as what we can do about it, uh, we we do what you're doing. We do what I'm doing, which is when we see the lies, we call them out. Yep. And when we see the truth, we call that out too. Yeah, and we celebrate it. Yeah. Amen. Well, good stuff. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming in. Absolutely. I enjoyed the it. with us. Awesome. We'll Very do it fun. again soon. All right, guys. Well, <clears throat> um, want to tell you guys about, hopefully you've seen it by now uh, because you're reading our articles and you see the opportunity for you guys to be a part of what we're doing financially. Um, that's a huge part of the future of 1819 News is that the people of Alabama financially supporting the work that 1819 News is doing for the people of Alabama. Um, that is the model. That is the method. That is uh, that is what it's going to have to be moving forward. So um, when you see that, uh, please click join, uh, become a, a member, a patron, um, you know, get some cool swag. We're working on figuring out exactly what those categories are going to be, but we've had a ton of pressure from people saying, Hey, just get the option on the website so we can financially support you guys. So, uh, we've done that. We've still got some kinks that we're working out, but, um, please go on there, uh, sign up for one of the clubs. I think 1099 is one. We have 1819, uh, <laughs> membership. Uh, so $18 and 19 cents a month. Uh, and then, uh, for those of you who really love what we're doing, we have a $50 and 99 cent group. And so, you know, I, I would encourage you to sign up for that one, but hey, you know, um, but in all seriousness, um, do what you can. Uh, we're here. We're fighting for you guys, uh, and we would love for you uh, to become a part of what we're doing. So do that. <clears throat> um, I think that that covers it for the week. Until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs>